Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. My guest today is one of the most distinguished American authors living today. Since writing her first novel at the age of 21, Alice Hoffman has published over 30 novels, three collections of short fiction, and eight books for children and young adults. Her book, Practical Magic, was made into a Warner Brothers film starring Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kidman and still has an enthusiastic fan base today. Hoffman's work has been published in more than 20 translations and more than 100 foreign editions, her novels have received mention as notable books of the year in the New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, the Los Angeles Times, and many more. Her latest book, The Invisible Hour, is already receiving rave reviews and releases this coming week. Alice, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to see you. Now, I was glancing over your bio, and I saw that you uh, studied uh, creative writing. In, in college and have a master's of arts in creative writing. I was curious what led you on that pathway? Did you have like some storytellers or authors that really motivated you early or that just inspired you to pursue a writing career? That's an interesting question because I always feel like people become writers because they were readers. <laughs> and, you know, I was a fanatical reader. I'm not anymore because I'm too busy writing. But there were so many authors who inspired me. But one who, who hugely inspired me was Ray Bradbury. Ah. And I've discovered when I was uh, actually my parents got divorced and my father left a box of books in the basement and Ray Bradbury was in that box. And I feel like I was so lucky he left those books. And I, I feel like everybody at like 12 or 13 should re read Ray Bradbury. He's such a moral writer and he's such a good person you know, aside from being, you know, such a creative writer. So he really influenced me. But all the books that I read, so many different authors influenced me. And I don't know if I wanted to be a writer so much, but I was kind of caught up in storytelling and much more interested in that world as a way to escape. Interestingly enough, I when I was about that age that you just mentioned, 12 or 13, as I think when I discovered Ray Bradbury um, and at our local library, they had something called the paperback book exchange. So if you brought a paperback book and dropped it off, you can take any of the books that were paperbacks and take it and read it and keep it as long as you wanted forever, if you wanted or bring it back and exchange it. And so, uh, That's cool. yeah. So during that, during one of those years, those summers is when I discovered Bradbury and and just all, all sorts of different uh, science fiction and fantasy authors and writers and horror writers. And, and now as an author, I'm like, yeah, I don't really know if I love the idea of selling one book to an entire town. But at the time, I thought it was amazing that I didn't have to buy a new book every week. <laughs> right. It's a little different when you're an author, but it's still <laughs> that you could do that as a kid. Now, you've been called the reigning queen of magical realism. Um, so what does it actually mean to you to write magical realism? Well, it's funny because I don't really distinguish, you know, I don't believe in genres. 
yeah. or genre innovation, you know, and it used to be that if you were kind of a Ray Bradbury or, you know, Ursula Le Guin, you were like a science fiction, fantasy and science fiction writer, not a literary writer, not a real writer was kind of the implication, you know, put to the side. I don't think that's true anymore. I think there's been like a huge shift in, you know, I don't know if that was because of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and his use of magic or something happened where it was no longer um, a lesser form. Yeah. For me, I always read magic. I, you know, I read fairy tales as a girl. I love these books. I don't know if you read them um, the, by Edward Eager. It was a series of magic books about it was about a bunch of kids who just kind of every summer they have kind of this magical experience. And I just thought of literature and magic as mm. kind of like intertwined. And yeah. I think it is. Is there a difference between what you what some people would call fantasy and and magical realism? I, I asked someone this question once, and I was just I'm not. I mean, I like what you said, not believing in genre so much, and um, and I actually really appreciate that because I feel like too often people get sort of boxed up into one yeah. sort of group or something like that. But like I asked someone who wrote, I guess she said magical realism. I said, is like are the Harry Potter books fantasy or magical realism? Like. To me, I feel like, I don't know that it really matters that much, but a lot of people lump them in, say, fantasy. Um, but it seems like they have an awful lot in common with what most people would say is magical realism. Yeah, I don't know how you define it. I mean, for me, it's kind of literature is literature. Yeah. And more and more, I've been thinking that one of the reasons people read fiction is to, oh, my dog will be barking on and off. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Um, one of the reasons people read fiction, I think, is to try to make sense out of life because reality is just not believable. Mm. You know, if you took reality and you wrote it as a novel. Your editor would make you rip it apart and change <laughs> it so it made sense. And I just think, you know, that's a big part of it is like we're looking for, to make sense of things and life. It doesn't really make sense. So we're trying to understand it by writing and reading fiction. Yeah, I was. Um... I was just, I just read this quote and I was trying to remember who, oh, Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor had said, you know, some people disparage fiction or whatever as an escape from reality. And she said, it's exactly the opposite. Re reading fiction is a plunge into reality. And I just love that because it's like reading fiction is, um, is a plunge into the things that matter, like love and and loss and grief and all of those things that make us human and 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 I feel like um to sort of say oh you read a fantasy or lie or whatever it might be science fiction or magical realism or something that's like it's like it's not an escape from reality it's a plunge into reality I like that yeah I like that too so although although I do think I'm trying to escape <laughs> but I do like that Tolkien wrote about escape in his essay on fairy stories, and um, he he's, he sort of didn't like it when people disparage the idea of trying to escape because it's like this world has a lot that we would want to escape from. There's a lot of pain, not the exact words he used, but a lot of pain and grief. And he's like, the natural response of someone when he's imprisoned is to try and find escape. And yeah. So I think, isn't that true? And yeah. also, you know, like I said, I think to try to make sense out of things that we really have trouble making sense out of, like grief, like loss, yeah. like like love, you know. 
You mentioned fairy tales. Um, I grew up uh, loving fairy tales as well. And uh, were there any that you still remember as being impactful for sort of shaping your view stories or storytelling? Yes. And I think, you know, I read this, I'm not exactly sure of the statistics, but I read like something like 80% of fairy tales, the hero is a girl. And I think that was a big part of it for me. Even like, you know, Hansel and Gretel, you know, Gretel's the smart one. She figures out everything. And there was this sense that girls could overcome evil and tragedy. They could find their way through their woods. They could tell who was a beast and who wasn't a beast. I think, you know, just in a general sense, there's not one specific fairy tale, but it was yeah. a sense as a girl for me when I read yeah. them that it was a way for me to rescue myself. Huh. No, that's cool. I I like that. I haven't heard that statistic, but there are so many stories of plucky and clever women in fairy tales and and so on like that. And and um, yeah, interesting. I like that. Yeah. Uh, so you started you, you well. You've written short fiction as well as as novels and so on, as I mentioned earlier. And I was curious. Do you feel like there are different, um, I guess, approaches to story or maybe skill sets or when you're writing short fiction as opposed to novel um what are you what are you zeroing in on or focusing on I'm just wondering if you view them at all differently for me that's such an interesting question because i really don't know the answer because sometimes i'll write a story and i'll think after it gets published or after it exists i think that could have been a novel i don't understand why i made <laughs> a story and i don't understand but there's something, it's not an intellectual thing for me. It's just kind of an emotional thing for me. And very often I feel like it could have been a novel. And yet that's not the way it turned out. I think Fahrenheit 451 was originally a short story. And oh, really? Yeah, it was a short story, I think, of maybe 20 or 25,000 words. And then he needed to f flesh it out, actually. to They wanted it as a novel. And so he was, I think he was paid by the word. So he... I remember reading that he was like yeah, go in the library basement and rent a typewriter and, and work on it and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, sometimes I regret certain stories that I, that mm. I haven't made to a novel, but yeah, isn't, isn't the way it is. I mean, for me, I feel like I will never have time to write it all. And so <laughs> I feel like this intense pressure. Um, I just won't have time. And I know I've, I've talked to other people who feel like, you know, they need to be inspired or, you know, they don't know what to write or they, they want to write, but they don't have the story. And I always feel like it's kind of a good idea to be in a writer's group when, when you're starting hmm. out hmm. to, you know, like, I feel like that's what, you know, going to graduate school was like for me with people talking about their stories and feeling like, I don't know, you know, for me, if you wait to be inspired, you could <laughs> wait a really long time. <laughs> you just have to sit down and do it and see what comes out. I think a lot of writers I've talked to, the problem isn't coming up with an idea, it's keeping up with the ideas and trying to, you know, like what you just said, you have so many stories you want to tell. Like, how do you keep up with them? How do you continue? Yeah. To tell them? It's, yeah, it's, I not don't know. I have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But I mean, I think I do believe that sometimes there's just so much you can think it. Yeah, you have, you have to actually write it, and mm -hmm. in the writing, it will become what it's meant to be. I like that. Yeah, 
I think that's very true, at least in my experience and other people that I've spoken to. Um, do you think it all out first and or or do you find no, out? No, no. The writing is the process of discovery. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah what you said. Um, and um, I think C.S. Lewis said something like, uh, you don't start with a theme and write a story. He's like, you write the story and the theme will emerge. And, and I feel like a lot of people try to go about it opposite, though, backwards. It's like they've been taught you should outline and plot out your stories and so on. And then um, they work on that. Or the, the, what's the theme of your story? Can you summarize in one sentence and then try to write it? A lot of times I, I can't really do any of that stuff until I've actually written the story. And th then I can say, oh, I see what it's about now. But I didn't know six months ago that that's what it would be about. Yeah, I, I so agree with you. I think there's a difference between a plot and a theme. Yeah. You know the plot and chart it all out. I mean, I usually do it chapter by chapter, sort of. But that doesn't mean you know what it's about. Hmm. That means you know the plot, but you don't know the theme. You don't know kind of the underlying heart of what's really happening in it, I think, until you write it. When, when you write, do characters ever surprise you in what they say or think or do? When oh, yeah. Where did that come from? Yes, all the time. All the time. I have like no idea and they'll make a choice that I didn't expect for them to choose. Mm. And then I have to change my outline, you know? Because... Yeah. Okay. That's what I was curious is if you like let them kind of give them free reign in a sense or cut the leash and let them act without restraint or if you try to pull them back into the outline that you had in mind. No, I go with them. Do you? Oh, I do. Uh, yeah. completely. I'm, co I don't outline at all. I'm totally organic and in, in my approach. And so for me, uh, even if I try to outline one scene, I'll end up, I'll look at, it, I'm like, that's nothing at all. Like what I'd started <laughs> with. And so the whole, uh, idea of plotting out or, or outlining a story seems, um, counterintuitive to the way that I write. I just, um, I just never end up there. I'm always surprised. So for me, I, I do. I yeah, up me there to tell you the truth, but it gives me a place to go. I think I yeah. know where I'm going, and I actually like to know the ending. Like oh, okay. very, I'll write the end of a book. Do you do that? No, I I've never started a book that I know how it will end. So yeah, what's that? We're opposites. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, everyone has you know some people plot and some outline and some down or whatever, but. But um, no, when I start a novel, I I know what will be true of the end, but I don't know what the ending will be. In other words, like I know the ending will be the moment um, of the great of the greatest challenge or sacrifice for the main character from the place of the greatest weakness. I'll, I'll know that um, justice will either be forestalled or usually some sort of justice will will come. It'll it'll be the moment at which nothing would believably escalate um, beyond that moment. So like if I write a scene, I'm like, oh, I, I think it could get worse Then I know it's probably not the climax yet. So, huh. yeah. So I kind of have in mind, I want the climax to be unexpected. So there's a surprise, but also inevitable so that it grows from logically from everything that precedes it. So anyway, so I when I'm writing, I, I ask these questions like what would be surprising or what would be, believable or what would the character do how can i escalate and those questions and sort of un unpack where the story will go yeah it's an interesting way to do it i tend to not think that much yeah <laughs> <laughs>
I'm not a but you do you think beforehand, I guess, right? When you I do beforehand, but then I'm just not thinking that much. I'm kind of I'm kind of inside. Like someone once said to me, and I think this is an interesting question. When you're writing, do you see your characters? And huh. I don't I don't see them, I'm inside of them. Ah, yeah, nice. I like that. I'm looking out through them, you know. I don't see them, I don't like picture an actor in the in the mm. you know the movie version of it or anything like that. What do you think gets in the way of people telling honest stories? Like a lot of people have an idea for a novel. They're like, I want to write this novel or something. But sometimes I've read the work of aspiring authors and it doesn't always, it feels like they're trying to do something instead of like um, just write an honest story. Obviously it's fiction, just not that it happened, but honest about human nature or honest to the characters or whatever it is. You know, I think some people, when they're writing from their own personal experience, yeah, which a lot of people start out doing, yeah. I think what stops them is the thought that someone will see it, you know, like their mother will see it, their father will see it, yeah. you know, if they're writing really close to themselves. And um, I never wrote like that, so I never ha had those feelings, but I know that yeah. people do. And that, I think that stops a lot of people, you know psychologically even if they're not aware of it you know if they're writing too close to reality their own reality yeah when you said that it made me think tosca lee is a an author and friend of mine and she said write as if what you write will never be read and i was like why would you do that like that seems opposite and i started thinking of it and she was basically saying get out of your own way like yeah. don't have all those impositions on yourself write as if okay grandma's not going to read this or whatever i'm just going to let the story be as honest as possible it's very interesting because i'd never really thought of that aspect of writing for chatting with her and seems similar to you well i think i was very lucky i had a great writing professor his name was albert gerard and the thing that he told us which is the opposite of what most people tell you is don't write what you know write what you can imagine okay nice yeah that was super freeing because he had a student named who was a very well-known author named John Hawks, and he had a book that was set in London, and he said John Hawks has never been to London. Mm. That was hugely freeing. Like you don't have to go to London to write about London. Yeah. You know, you don't have to, you know, whatever, you know, be a sailor to write about sailing. You just have to, you know, you can do research, but you just have to feel it. You know, yeah. if you can feel it, you can write it, I think. Yeah, there's. Uh, I've written serial killers and teenage girls and FBI agents, and as far as I know, I've never been any of those three <laughs> before. So, yeah, it's it is. It's true that uh, you don't necessarily write, but I get where people are coming from. They want that that air of authenticity and so on in the writing. But yeah, no. If you say I'll just write what I know, you limit yourself quite a bit. Um, in the stories you would tell, obviously. Um, are there any uh, like kind of things, tricks of the trade you've picked up over the years that you maybe didn't um, hear uh, when you were studying writing or didn't maybe read in a book where you're like, this has actually been super helpful for me, but no one ever taught me this or told me that this would be a good way to go? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I like the idea of like, write as if no one's ever going to read it. Yeah. Because you're really kind of writing the story for yourself, right? So mm -hmm. when I started out, I didn't think about publishing. That wasn't like part of the whole picture. It was just about writing. There wasn't as big a pressure or a push to be published. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, it was the 70s, so it was really like the 60s. And <laughs> I'm just thinking about those things. And that was kind of a blessing for me because I did what I wanted to do, not what I thought would sell. And I think there's so much pressure right now for people, especially in writing programs, to kind of write something that they want to sell. Mm. Which kind of makes sense. It's it's just very freeing not to feel that way. Yeah, it's this sort of hard to um, conundrum where to make a living, you sell it, but are, are you giving up your art to do? I don't know. People go back and forth with with all of that. But I I love what you said, and I feel like it is very important to be able to get to that place where you're writing out of that authentic um, sort of nature of what you believe and who you are and all these things without just like saying, I've got to package something up so it'll sell immediately or, yeah. That's pressure. You know, I think that's a lot of pressure. And also the idea of making a living at writing. I mean, I forget the percentage of like, you know, something like 8% of writers make a living at just writing and not having another job. And and um, I just think, you know, you just can't go into it thinking like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um... It it seems to be the number seems to be shrinking every year. <laughs> Whenever yeah. I look at those statistics, I'm like, it's like what? It's down again? How is it down again? Maybe it's five percent. I don't know what the percentage yeah. is, but it's not it's not a great percentage. Yeah, it, it's not huge, and so there has to be a great love for what you're doing. It has to be, I think, or you're gonna um, be too disheartened or discouraged, maybe, to keep going. Yeah. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, my uh, producer and assistant is a huge fan of your work, um, and her favorite book is The Dove Keepers. Ah, yeah. And um, and so I wondered if you could just, you know, share a little bit about that story, or if there's anything that that was really memorable for you in writing that story. Um, and uh, maybe tell us just a little bit about that one. And then I'd like to hear about your newest book, too. Well, that story, The Dove Keepers, is based on um, kind of a historical happening when um, a bunch of Jewish rebels fought off the Roman army from this mountaintop. Hmm. And it's a, it's a very tragic story. Um, and I actually was not thinking about writing it because I knew nothing about, you know, kind of ancient Israel or the Roman army. I knew nothing, but I happened to go there and oh, wow. uh, my son is an archaeologist. So I was kind of interested in archaeology and biblical sites. So I went to this site and it was, I really felt like I could hear the voices of the people who were there. Oh, oh, I forgot this part of the story. Everyone died. They committed a mass suicide rather than be taken captive. So it's a very tragic, sad story. And then I kind of went to the museum and I saw all of these artifacts and a lot of them had, were women. Mm. There were, you know, women's clothing and, and jewelry and things like that. And I kind of felt like I could hear the voices of the women who no one ever spoke about. Mm. But then there was a little sign that said there had been survivors, which I didn't know. And as soon as I saw that sign that there had been survivors, I felt like this is a novel. I, I may not know anything about anything, but this is a novel. And um, it took me a long time. It took me about five years for me. It's a really long time to do the research. And the, the greatest thing for me was that after I wrote it, I went back and the head of Masato took me on a tour before, I, before anyone was there. And he said, you know, I never thought about the women that were here until I read your book. 
Wow. And I felt like, you know, I wanted to, I mean, I think that's kind of what I want to do is yeah. give to, to women who weren't able to tell their stories. So that's what I was trying to do in that book. I mean, I don't think I can ever write a book like that again. I think that's sometimes you have a one, one time book and that yeah. was it for me. But yeah, giving a voice to them and, um, you know, affirming how their stories mattered. I think that's, that's huge. That's, um, um, especially when you deal with tragedies and things like that. When you, when you mentioned that one of the books that I wrote came to mind where there was mass suicide, but it was in a much, well, the Jonestown massacre back in the seventies is so tragic and horrifying. And, um, but, um, but anyway, I, I interviewed one of the three remaining, uh, survivors, uh, when I was working on one of my novels and, and uh, so I ended up dedicating the book to his wife and his son Malcolm, who both died there in Jonestown. And I remember writing, I said, could I dedicate it to them? And he's like, well, what do you want to say? Like, he was a little nervous. And I said, I want to say to Gloria and Malcolm, because your story matters. And he's like, I'd, I'd like that if you could do that. Because, that, that, you know, it's like, that's what we're trying to do is their stories mattered. Yeah. And, um, and the stories that you wrote, you know, those women, um, the survivors and stuff, it's like their stories matter and their stories um you know, should be told. I was I was doing a tour in Atlanta, just doing some research, and we were going past the. Um, there's this big, I don't know, I can't remember the name of it. It's a graveyard, but anyway, every year at this graveyard, they they basically do these reenactment reenactments. There's a saying in the South that you die three deaths. So the first is when um, your uh, see the first death is when your soul leaves your body. I think the second death is when you're buried. And the third death is when the last person speaks your name. Mm -hmm. So after the last person speaks your name, then you've all three deaths. And so what they do at this graveyard is like, they'll have these actors find a gravestone and do research on that person as much as they can, as much as they can find out. And then they have a special night where people can tour the graveyard and these actors will then tell that person's story oh. as sort of a way of keeping them alive. I love that. What a great thing to do. Yeah. It's so interesting um, because, you know, people's stories matter and, and, um, and, and finding ways to continue to give life to them, I think is a powerful you know, gift that we have as, as storytellers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really true. And, and actually my new book, the invisible hour is really about how stories affect us and how important stories are and how important it is to read and to go to libraries and how that, you know, can change your life as it did for me. And I'm sure for you, you yeah. know, it's, it's, you know, if you hadn't picked up that Ray Bradbury book or whatever, you know, your life would be different and your your vision of the world would be different. Yes. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about this new book. Uh, it releases here in just a couple of days. So I want our our listeners to obviously check it out, maybe pre-order it. Um, the title is The Invisible Hour. And uh, so... As little yeah. as much as you want to share about it, it's uh... yeah. well. It's so interesting that you mentioned Jonestown, and um, uh, because the, the Invisible Hour starts with a girl who's raised in a cult, mm. and 
And um, it's really about how like that during, you know, many periods in history, including our own, you know, very often women don't have choices about certain aspects of their life and about their own bodies. And um, so it's about this girl who's raised in a cult. And one of the things about the cult is that there are no books hmm. that read is dangerous. And I'm sure this is kind of an expression of my Ray Bradbury fandom. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he knew that, you know, it, it, you know, if there are no books then you know, a society is going to fall apart. So there are no books. And she um, is befriended by the librarian in town. Mm. And that changes her life. And she reads a book that reminds her of her mother's story. And that book is The Scarlet Letter, which is kind mm. of a great <laughs> feminist book um, about a woman who has a child and refuses to tell who the father is and, you know, raises her on her own. It's just a very radical book mm. and takes place during the, you know, Puritan society. And so it, it, when she reads that, it, it reminds her so much of her own life. And um, she kind of falls in love with Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and with that book. And um, is able to kind of go back through time and, and find him. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a story about how a reader affects a writer and how a writer affects a reader. And it celebrates the power of his story, you know, impacting her today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was really interesting to write and it was interesting. I've always been interested in Nathaniel Hawthorne as a person and as a writer. And, um, you know, it was it was kind of great to go back and read all of his works and kind of remember oh, wow. how terrific they were. And I, I don't know, you know, it, it it was kind of a world of writers out in Concord, Massachusetts. You know, there's so many writers were there on Emerson and Thoreau and um so it's just, it's just, it's a love story, but it's also kind of a love story between readers and writers. Huh. Nice. No, that's interesting. And um, so obviously my first question, I always, you know, but I, you probably can't answer this because it'd be a spoiler, but does she come back? But don't tell me if she comes <laughs> back. I don't, don't spoil it. But, um, but obviously as a, as a lover of stories, I'm like, okay, she, well, what happens next? So. Well, I don't, you know, I've always been a big time travel fan. And yeah. I think somehow during COVID, I wrote it during COVID. I think a lot of people wrote about time travel because mm. there's a desire to get out of here yeah. and go backwards or forwards or someplace else, you know, other than, you know, this kind of trapped life, you know, a lot of us, and especially in urban places, we're feeling like we were living. And I do have the sense, like, if I could... If I was offered the ability to go back in time, I would accept. Would hmm. you? I depends on well. Yeah, what's the question? Would I be able to come back? I don't know. If I couldn't come back, then I would need to think carefully about where I want to go. If I could revisit moments from the past, that would be fascinating to be able to come back. I actually have a book I'm working on where something like that happens, but. Where would I go? When would I go? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Oh, I know exactly where I would go. Oh, tell me. I've been in New York City in the 60s. Okay. That's where I'm going. And I actually wrote a book about New York City in the 60s, and it was so much fun to write. It was called The Rules of Magic, and I had this series, a Practical Magic series, uh -huh. and it was um, one of the four books in that series, and it was just 
so much fun. And I went, you know, to Greenwich Village and visited the spots where, you know, you know, the bitter end and all these places that, that are in the book uh-huh. and, um, and made, uh, uh, you know, made a list of all the songs that, that are in the book. Oh, yeah. It's really fun. I mean, I kind of want to go back for the music alone to tell you. The truth. <laughs> um, no, that's, it's pretty cool. I think in a way stories allow us to do obviously kind of do that to visit times and yeah. places that um, we couldn't and we're able to fall in love um, with them. Someone once said something like, I envy the writer because she can live two lives at once or something like that. But um, it's like we do. Oh, more than two. What's that? <laughs> I know more than two. More I know than. exactly. Lots of different, you know, lives. Um, when, when you have a story um, that you're reading, let's say, do you have certain things that you love when an author does them that really draw you into like, into that story or things that really attract you from certain stories? Well, I'm not really sure. Like, as I said, I don't read as much as I used to, but I have to say my favorite living author is Elizabeth Strout. And I think about, okay, so why do I love her books so much? You know, she's very different than I am. It's yeah. not because similar in any way. The thing about her that I love, I mean, she's just a brilliant writer, but she does this thing that I think is so powerful, which is, you're going along and you think you know what the story is and suddenly she makes a turn that mm. totally surprises you and to- it totally is like an emotional wallop mm. that you don't expect. And that's, I think, the thing that I really love about her. I love stories that do that. I always am on the lookout for stories that sort of pull the rug out either emotionally or contextually. And it's, what? I didn't realize that. Or this... Yeah truer than i thought or something like that and those pivots i i i I love those so much yeah yeah me too and i think you know the thing about you know saying a writer can live two lives well a reader can too that's true good point yeah 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 i mean i always feel like a book is really nothing without a reader i mean it really is nothing and you you do it it's on paper but until someone imagines it and has you know it lives again, you know, depending on who the reader is and the way they see it and the way they feel about, um, you know, themes in the book that you didn't even realize were there. Yeah. Yeah. When you were mentioning fairy tales earlier, I was thinking, you know, fairy tales. um, I just like the oral tradition that they were told and retold, remembered, reshaped, reformed so that uh, you know, whatever story it might be, um, after a hundred years, yes, it's similar, it's the same, but it's so different because it reflects, you know, what aspects of culture are going on today and the struggles and things like that that we have. And it's always been my sort of perspective that stories only live as long as they have uh, an audience, either told stories or like we just said, you know, written stories, the reader is, is so vital to to shaping that and being a part yeah. of it. I mean, part of fairy tales is the, just what you said, the oral tradition, but I always think of them as grandmothers telling mm. stories to grandchildren. And that may be because I had a Russian grandmother who told me her stories. You know, we could be on a bus in New York City and, but we were also like in the forest in Russia. And she, oh, wow. I, you know, I feel like that's where I really started 
being interested in stories and the mm. idea that they could transport you so completely. Mm. Yeah. That's a that uh that's a huge storytelling culture that a lot of people maybe I maybe aren't as aware of. I mean, people have heard of the grim fairy tales and folk tales from Europe and stuff, but the uh, like a lot of Russian folk tales and fairy tales are um, there's there's that storytelling tradition is 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 alive and always I think has been for a long time. I was um I was at, everyone in Russia always wanted to escape <laughs> from the beginning. Yeah. No kidding. That's true. Um, years ago, I was in Kazakhstan doing a training for writers. And uh, afterwards, they're like, come over to our house or, or so-and-so's birthday or whatever. So this is after the Soviet Union had kind of collapsed and splintered and so on. So anyway, so we went to this guy's house and it was his birthday. And so people just came and started to sing and then actually would read poems that they wrote. And someone would get up and tell a story. And so it started at like maybe six or seven at night at two o'clock in the morning, still people just sharing stories and uh, poems and, and singing songs. Let's sing a song. And they sing. I was, this is so different than what I grew up with in America. It's like, let's watch a movie and throw pizza in. Okay. Well, I mean, that's fun too, but yeah, I just love that it was. Kind of campfire tradition. Oh, yeah. Each other witless and you know around the fire, you yeah. know, kind of telling those stories. And you know, maybe it's faded a little bit, but I, you know, I don't know. I maybe people don't have that oral tradition as much, but there's still mm. kind of slams and yeah. you know, poetry slams and things where you get up and and tell your story. You know, I don't know. I just think it's such a such a big part of life. I always feel sad when people are not reading stories because I just feel like it so enriches your life. Yeah. No, I agree. Totally. It's um, we cut ourselves off from a lot of the things that really matter most when we avoid stories. So I was talking to someone once and he was like, yeah, I don't really read much fiction. I just read nonfiction as if it was disparaging. Like, and you know what I mean? Like I don't bother with those made up stories. I just do true stories or something. And I was like, how many times have you broken into tears reading a biography? He's like, uh, I was like, but yet when people read great fiction, great stories, they break into tears or they read a story and they're never the same again, even though it's made up. And it's, right. yeah, it's like it, 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 the, these stories can have just the power to, to affect us in ways that matter most. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with nonfiction, love nonfiction too, yeah. <laughs> good stories, but, yeah. um, so well, this has been so fun. I've really enjoyed Alice chatting with you a little bit about um, your new book and about stories in general. And um, I've, I've started to ask people a couple of questions just toward the end of the um, interviews. It's because I really fi I find the, them fascinating. And I've started to really read the books that are recommended. So here's the first one. What is one novel besides yours that everyone should read before they die? And you can't say the Scarlet Letter because you already talked about that. Before they die. Well, I guess I have to say Wuthering Heights. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, I have never read Wuthering Heights. Oh, my God. Well, you better go ahead and get it out. <laughs> before I die. I have to before I die. Oh, my oh, God. I think it's the greatest psychological novel ever written. And the really? 
love that book. And the fact that it was written by a woman who had so little life experience and was able to write this huge emotional novel is kind wow. of astounding. Well, it'll definitely go on my list. I Every time I ask that question, I've started to pile up more books and, and I'm trying to read them. It's crazy. Like what you said, the more you write, it's like people ask you, what do you like to read? I'm like, well, I, I love to read a million things, but I haven't been doing it as much as I wanted lately. So, all right. And finally, just the last one is if you could speak back through the years to your younger self, maybe back when you were a teenager, what is one thing you wish you could tell your younger self? This is the reason I'm writing all these books. I am telling my younger self all of the things that I should have known and didn't know. Mm. There's just so much I can't even I can't even begin. <laughs> I knew I, I seriously knew nothing. No, that's I think a lot of our lives can be spent doing that, you know, telling the world what we wish we could have told our younger selves. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like every book I write, I'm I'm writing for that younger self. Mm. I'm writing for myself. So do you have any closing words of maybe encouragement or advice to other authors out there who might say, wow, I've never written 30 books or, you know, I don't have a master of arts and creative writing, anything like that, but I want to write this story. I have this idea. What would you say to aspiring authors out there? I really think it's a great idea to take a class, hmm. to be with other writers. In most cities and towns, there's either a writer's organization or a university or someplace you know an adult education thing someplace where you could be with other writers and I think sometimes you know when you have a story inside you but you can't get it out I think sometimes yeah. when you do on Tuesday you'll start writing <laughs> you know? so I, I just think for me that works for that works to know I have a deadline and to be with other people who are interested in what you're interested in yeah cool well good so get out there meet people meet other authors meet other storytellers Exactly. with them well thanks again for being here i really appreciate it are there places online where people can connect with you maybe uh find out if you're doing a book signing or speaking at an event or when your next book comes out yeah thanks yeah i'm on instagram and facebook and twitter and all of those my book tours up there and you know just anything time i speak or anything it, it will be up there okay great and then is it just your name search for your name and it'll come up yeah, it'll come up perfect well, everyone, thanks for listening, and I hope you will order um, the the latest book from from Alice, The Invisible Hour. And um, if you um, if you're listening to this and uh, you listen to it the weekend it comes out, you can pre-order it. Otherwise, if you're listening to this next week, you can go ahead and get your copy right now. Um, so check that out. Thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, for for being here and um, for tuning in for more info about our guests, other guests, and to check out our other interviews, you can search for us uh, wherever you might listen to your podcasts um, or click to thestoryblender.com. And don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Fridays. And uh, also just one more time, I just wanted to say thanks, Alice, for taking the time to be with me today. Pleasure to talk to you. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.